Tonight's New Testament reading is Acts 9, 1 through 22. But Saul, still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord, went to the high priest and asked him for letters to the synagogues at Damascus, so that if he found any belonging to the way, men or women, he might bring them bound to Jerusalem. Now as he went on his way, he approached Damascus, and suddenly a light from heaven shone around him, and falling to the ground, he heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And he said, Who are you, Lord? And he said, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. But rise and enter the city, and you will be told what you are to do. The men who were traveling with him stood speechless, hearing the voice but seeing no one. Saul rose from the ground, and although his eyes were opened, he saw nothing. So they led him by the hand and brought him to Damascus. And for three days he was without sight and neither ate nor drank. Now there was a disciple at Damascus named Ananias. The Lord said to him in a vision, Ananias, and he said, Here I am, Lord. And the Lord said to him, Rise and go to the street called Straight, and at the house of Judas look for a man of Tarsus named Saul. For behold, he is praying, and he has seen in a vision a man named Ananias come in and lay his hands on him so that he might regain his sight. But Ananias answered, Lord, I have heard from many about this man, how much evil he has done to your saints at Jerusalem, and here he has authority from the chief priests to bind all who call on your name. But the Lord said to him, Go, for he is a chosen instrument of mine to carry my name before the Gentiles and kings and the children of Israel. For I will show him how much he must suffer for the sake of my name. So Ananias departed and entered the house. And laying his hands on him, he said, Brother Saul, the Lord Jesus, who appeared to you on the road by which you came, has sent me, so that you may regain your sight and be filled with the Holy Spirit. And immediately, something like scales fell from his eyes, and he regained his sight. Then he rose and was baptized. And taking food, he was strengthened. For some days, he was with the disciples at Damascus, and immediately he proclaimed Jesus in the synagogues, saying, He is the Son of God. And all who heard him were amazed and said, Is not this the man who made havoc in Jerusalem of those who called upon this name? And has he not come here for this purpose, to bring them bound before the chief priests? But Saul increased all the more in strength and confounded the Jews who lived in Damascus by proving that Jesus was the Christ. This is the word of the Lord. Would you join me as we pray? Oh God, would you open the eyes of our heart that we would see the hope to which you've called us the great treasure it is to be connected to to your people and the immeasurable power that comes from having your spirit in our lives. Oh Lord, would you do this uh, for the sake of your name? In Christ's name, amen. One of the great 
fears that everybody, I would say, lives with, uh, we all live with, is that some dark deed, some dark thought, some sin in our lives would be exposed in the light. Each of us lives with that fear that will not only be outed by the light, but basically the laser truth and righteousness of God will torch us if it sees us in the light with that sin. And so we imagine light mostly as something that will threaten and harm us instead of something that would invite and heal us. And some of that is because uh, experiences we've had in relationships. Maybe we risk to sort of like bring something a little bit out in the light and we got torched or someone took it upon themselves to instruct us on what we had to do differently. There was no empathy. Or just look at the world, right? I mean, if someone is exposed in the world on a public scale, many times what they face is scorn and just to be cast aside. It's hard for us to believe that coming into the light could actually be the best thing that could ever happen to us. And so, one of the things that God does is he gives us an account like this, this great well-known account of Saul who becomes the Apostle Paul on the road to Damascus as he is brought into the light. Who he is is exposed. And one of the things that the Bible does by giving us this account is to say, listen, if God would use his light in this way in the life of a murderous, brutal person, can't we have the courage to bring our stuff into the light? I mean, if if he would respond that way to this persecutor and this hater, how much more could we take a step? Our theme this year is family of God. And a subset of that, as we're looking at the book of Acts, is this idea of being one new people. And the way that we think about light and handle light has a direct bearing on the sort of community this can be. Can we be a community that actually um, is a welcoming place to be transparent, a place that can be vulnerable, a place that's different from what we find in our own city in the culture. And I'm optimistic it can be because the light of the world, Christ, resides among his people. So, I want us to look at two things. The way uh, Jesus brings enlightenment but also how he enlists us when the light comes. So let's look at those two things together, okay? So as you've heard throughout the service, Friday was Epiphany, around the world in the church. Today is often called Epiphany Sunday, and it commemorates when these pagan, scholar, uh, pagan astrologers uh, make their way, guided by a star, to Jesus. You know, Jesus, by that time, may have been a year and a half or two, we don't know, because it would have taken some time for them to get there. And as they make their way to him, in a sense, 
Christ, for the first time, is revealed outside of Israel. He's revealed to the whole world, the Gentile world. Epiphany. It also commemorates the idea of Jesus' baptism, where you have God the Father and God the Son bearing witness. This is my Son, with whom I am well pleased. The Son of God. This is behind the idea of epiphany. Now, in the Russian Orthodox Church, they have an interesting way they commemorate this. Some of you may know this. Um, where um, they, they want to commemorate the baptism side by uh, what they do is to jump in the water. Right? Jump in the lake, jump in a river. But it also happens to be wintertime, right? And so it's become sort of this, you know, rite of, you know, you know uh, epiphany, epiphany with pangs of suffering and shock. And in that way, it probably resembles the Apostle Paul's epiphany closely because Paul gets knocked off his horse and struck blind in his first encounter of Christ. Saul already, as a young man, had inflicted great harm upon this Jesus movement. In fact, I mean, apart from God's intervention... And if Paul would have continued on his road, I mean, he would have probably ended up being one of the great, uh, one of the great uh, tyrants and genocidal maniacs in the history of the world. And when you think about what he accomplished in such a short time, I mean, he's probably about 22 by now. It's described in the book of Acts, but Saul was ravaging, that word, tearing apart the church. Entering house after house, he dragged off men and women and committed them to prison. Bear in mind, that means there's a lot of orphans. Families are being torn apart. In our passage, but Saul, still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord, went to the high priest and asked him for letters to the synagogue at Damascus, so that if he found any belonging to the way, this Jesus movement, men or women, again emphasizing both and, He might bring them bound to Jerusalem. And it wasn't just others reporting this. Paul himself later admitted and testified to his own maniacal obsession. This is what he says. I myself was, he's testifying before a king in Rome. and, And three times Paul's conversion is narrated in the book of Acts because it's understood to be such a pivotal thing, not only in his life, but in the movement in the church. Up to now, in the book of Acts, you have Peter as a focus, and Philip as a focus. But now, as Paul enters the scene, it's really Paul is the main focus. Not because of just who he is, but the ministry God gave him. I myself was convinced that I ought to do many things in opposing the name of Jesus of Nazareth. And I did so in Jerusalem. I not only locked up many of the saints in prison, but when they were put to death, I had cast my vote against them. I punished them often in all the synagogues and tried to make them blaspheme and in raging fury persecuted them even to foreign cities. Paul had inflicted real trauma and real loss upon people. People had to live with that, families. But what I think is the most unnerving is as he did it, he believed that he was in the light and in the right. And so we have this dynamic, right, where 
you can believe in your heart of hearts that you are right and you were doing the right thing and still be hateful and harmful to people. How does that happen? How does that happen? Because it's happening all the time in our culture, right? And I would say, sadly, within the church, too. Well, there's a couple things, I think, that contribute to it. Uh, One is, for Paul, there were a lot of things that he was relying on for a sense of lightness and rightness. Uh, His own lineage, the family that he was from. Uh, his own, uh, re- their religious commitment. Paul's own uh, studies with uh, a great rabbi would have contributed that. That's mentioned later in the book of Acts. Paul's devotion to the law, the way he was commended by leaders above him, the way that he was excelling beyond people of his own age. One of my friends who's a New Testament scholar said, they surmise that Paul by this time would have had the equivalent of two PhDs in his doctrine and theology. All these things in the community Paul was in would have been reinforcing, you're right, you're in the light, right? And what happens is uh, when we sever this idea of being in the right from when we separate truth from grace, holiness from love, when we separate this idea that I can be right and therefore it justifies the me, it, it, it justifies my behavior in my anger level, we found ourselves in a very dangerous spot. And I would say it's, it's a common way that we function in our world. Two things, sort of two evil twins dwell together, anger and self-righteousness. And these things are fueling the Apostle Paul. Now, there's something very helpful Scripture gives us that we might avoid that idea. That we might avoid the delusion that we're actually in the light and in the right and find ourselves behaving in a way that would be harmful to lots of people. And it's the way that the Bible understands both righteousness, but the way it understands what it means to be enlightened. So oftentimes um, when when we have bad anger, and there's good anger, There's righteous anger, but when there's bad anger, the way that we're sort of instructed to deal with it is uh, be nice, be gentle. That's supposed to be the opposite of the anger. But the scripture actually takes us a different direction, and it says be humble, because the real thing that's fueling the anger is pride. That's the real problem. It's not just anger itself. And if you want to deal with pride, the antidote to that is humility. Listen how the the book of James talks about this. Listen to the logic, because if you're someone, and I've already said all of us at some level struggle with bad anger. It's just part of being a sinful person in the world. Some of us, you know, it's a bigger part of their story. I, you know, it's part of my story. 
uh, I've often said that my AA is anxiousness and anger. You know, that, that was my family story. That's my story. And uh, I remember years ago when I first said that, and, and people were, uh, would come up to me and go, but Glenn, you seem so zen, so peaceful. You know, so, and I was like, well, you know, just spend some time in my home. You know, when someone really pushes me and pushes me and pushes me, But listen to the logic here because it really helps. James says the anger of man, and he also says you can say this is selfish ambition, jealousy, envy, different expressions. The anger of man does not produce the righteousness of God. Okay? So he's making this tie between anger and righteousness. It was existing in Paul. And then goes on to make this contrast. It talks about enlightenment. Wisdom is the word that's used. This is how it is uh, phrased. Who is wise and understanding among you? That is to say, who's enlightened here? Who's enlightened? By his good conduct, let him show his works in the meekness of wisdom. Peaceable, gentle, open to reason, full of mercy. How do you know that you're truly in the right and in the light? You're character, expressly humility and meekness will be the giveaway. And so if humility and meekness is absent, you are not in the light and in the right. They are bound together. As much as we want to separate them and say, no, I can be this way and I can be this way, no. Scripture would say, you're deceived like Paul. And so, what does Paul experience? He experiences humility. But this is where we get to the unbelievable grace of Jesus. You know, Jesus appears to him. Paul, you know, would have known enough to say, this is like a man of, this is a theophany, a manifestation. You're expecting Lord to speak to you. He even says, like, Lord. And who does he find Lord is? Jesus. Jesus says, Saul, Saul. And you also see here how Jesus identifies with his people, right? If you've ever thought, does, you know, he care the, about the harm I get. He takes it personally. Saul, Saul, speaks to Saul. After Saul is, right, humbled on the ground, please pass the compass. Paul is so smart, he finds that he's totally lost. He's literally blind. He's been blind. This educated, educated Wise, excelling beyond his peers, knows nothing. You know, there's a lot of people that know a lot, and they know nothing. Paul knew nothing. But he's going to begin to understand what it means to know the light of grace. What happens? First of all, he's led to a shelter and a home of the very people that he's been persecuting. And then God sends someone that was likely top on his list. This guy, Ananias, was probably on the list to be persecuted. You can see his trepidation. I love, I love when you know, the Bible just talks about it. It's, it's so, so naturally how we would really respond. Like Ananias is like, you know, Jesus, this guy's a pretty tough cookie. I, I mean, do you really think you can take him? 
And you really think you can convert them. And by the way, why do I have to go, right? He sends him. And what does Ananias say? He greets him as brother. He heals him. He's filled with the Holy Spirit and he's baptized. The washing away of sins. Paul meets the light of grace. Jesus meets him with the grace of God. Paul would later talk about this. He What he experienced was that very thing. In the book of Timothy, he would say this, although I was a blasphemer and a persecutor, grace overflowed with the faith and love that are in Jesus. That's what he experienced. And then he would go on to say, the life I now live, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. I do not nullify the grace of God, for if righteousness we're through the law, then Christ died for no purpose. And that gives us another end to diagnosing, diagnosing anger. You see, um, anger, bad anger, is fueled by self-righteousness, which is fueled by something else. And that is the belief that I must and can justify myself by my deeds. This was Paul's mindset. For Paul, it was a religious expression of this, the laws of Israel. But it doesn't have to be that for you or I. You you could be here and you're not a religious person. But the question is, how do you seek a sense of rightness? And of course, all of us could say, uh, Yeah, do I try to seek a sense of rightness through, maybe it's justification by education, where I went to school. Maybe it's justification by my position. Maybe it's justification in the kind of son or daughter I am, or the mother and father I am. These different things that we use, how we seek to live, to to establish ourselves in our own conscience. And so it plays this trick, right? We're we're working ourselves into the light and righteousness. It ends up being a false righteousness. When it doesn't succeed, when it doesn't do what it's supposed to do, we find ourselves angry and shrinking back from the light. This is the cycle we get ourselves in. There was a direct correlation between Paul, who was living his life by achievements and accomplishments and the vision he had of the world, and his sense that I'm right, and his sense of anger. One of the signs of someone that lives through self-justification is anger. One of the signs of someone that begins to experience gentleness and meekness is grace. It's this idea of the Son of God who has come and taken my wrath. This is what Paul came to understand. The very Jesus that I was persecuting and as I was inflicting wrath on the church, he came before I even knew him and absorbed the wrath that was due me, the judgment that was due me, the punishment that should have been mine. The light didn't scorch me. The light enveloped me. The light purified me. The light embraced me. And he was changed. He was changed. Paul didn't go on, you know, a plan of reforming his own anger. 
Or now I'm going to go through a gentleness course. I'm going to go through a humility course. What happened was, deep in his heart, Jesus had freed him from his own self-righteousness and his own anger. And this is what the gospel of grace begins to do in our lives. I was... uh, And the thing that many times we don't see, and Paul wouldn't have seen, right? Because he thought he was serving God. He didn't understand that ultimately... It wasn't just the world that he was mad at. It was God he was mad at. Listen to this quote. Our problem is not just that we are failing God, but that we are fighting God. Our natural state is not just that we break the rules and fall short of being good, but that we resent God's control over our lives. And we set ourselves up as our own Savior and Lord, and we resist his exertion of his power over us. I was uh, watching a film this past weekend. I'm a fan of uh, noir, film noir. And this was 1946, just after um, World War II. And it's a film called The Stranger uh, with Orson Welles in it. And he plays a um, Nazi war criminal who fictionally was the brainchild behind the genocide. And he's been able to, he thinks, erase his past, and now he's living in Connecticut, a small town. And he is a prep school professor who is beloved. Uh, He is now engaged to uh, a Supreme Court justice's daughter. Uh, He's loved and respected in the community. And also, on top of this, he has this skill to restore uh, antique clocks. And there's this huge clock uh, on the belfry of the church. And uh, he'll spend hours up there trying to fix it, to try to restore it. And it's this imposing clock that has these angels with swords that kind of rotate when it's working. Well, of course, it doesn't work. Someone gets a little bit of light creeps in, and then more light begins to creep in. And the truth begins to start to, to bear upon his life. And he you know, justifies in his mind what he did in his new identity with the things that he's accomplished. You know, I'm not that person. I'm this, I'm this, I'm this. But he still has this hatred and hostility in him coming out in different ways. And in the end, well, the end's just so great, I'm not going to tell you what it is. In case you want to watch it. It's just, you know, it's a great ending, the way it ends. But I'll I'll allude to it again. So, this is our tendency, okay? We We want to sort of like patch ourselves with this stuff. And God's inviting us to come out of the darkness into the light. And when light exposes a real, not a fictional, but a real murderous, genocidal maniac, Paul, what happens is he finds epiphany love, what's revealed to him. And and I'm just, I'm pleading with you and pleading with me. The love of God is so much greater than any of us know. Freer, unconditional, patient. Can it pull us into the light? Where is it in your life that you feel like, I I won't? 
I just want to plead with you to step into this redemptive, forgiving light. If, if, and Paul didn't even go looking for it. It found him. Tonight, you're hearing the word of God. It's, it's after you. Good faith, right? If this is what Jesus would do for Paul, how much more would he embrace you? What a great gospel. It's the missionary God who delivers sinners from the dominion of darkness and transfers them to the kingdom of his son who he loves. And as Christ's light shines, we're not only experienced conversion, we come to know him for the first time as he is. We not only experience ongoing transformation because, you know, it wasn't like Paul became perfect overnight. All of us have to work out and believe this gospel. All of us have to wrestle with it, right? I mean, for years I've been trying to apply the gospel to my own struggle with anger. It hadn't been easy, it hadn't been pretty, but you know something? I I think I've made progress. I think my wife's watching on the feed because she's home with COVID. But um, if she were here, I'm sure she'd agree. (laughs) Anyway, so back to the film real quick, because I want to talk about the enlisted part. Um, So, you know, this guy has different skills, but what happens in the end of the film is um, his very... It turns out his very skill and ability, the very thing that he was trying to uh, light himself with, wrap himself like with you know Christmas lights to make himself look like he was not in the darkness and the righteousness, that very skill ends up being the very thing that brings him down. And the same thing was happening with Paul, right? The very things that he was trusting in, those different things, they were finally what took him down. And the way it happens in the film, I'm going to spoil a film for you. But, you know, 70 years, you know, 80 years. Noir films love the big fall, if you've watched noir films. You know, you can always expect at the end, someone's going to fall, like, really far. Uh, But this had a twist, because, you know, he's finally chased up to the spire, and he uh, is shot, and he makes his way out to where the clock, and he has restored the clock, and he's out there, right? hoping that he can escape. And what happens? Here comes that angel with the sword. His own abilities, his own uh, gifts and talents, his own aspiration does him in. God, um, now that, that would seem, it would be easy, it would be easy then to say, the problem is, our gifts and ability and our ambition and the things we're doing, right? You might leave this message at this point and go, well, I guess what Glenn is saying is that all these things that I, that I desire to be useful or to excel or achieve, this is Washington, D.C., you know, it's, they're just inherently bad. I need to stop all of that and become really passive and just live by grace. No. What we're talking about is just like a fuel change, Right? Uh, a fuel change, um, an oil change, um, 
many ways, that's what we're trying to do week after week here. What does it look? Paul's fuel moves, as I read to you, from anger in this vision of righteousness to the Son of God who gave himself for me. Later he'll say, uh, I labor with all the energy that's in me, the energy of his love. And what happens then is those skills and those abilities then are totally redeemed and repurposed for the kingdom of God. God is really smart, if you haven't noticed. He's really smart, and as Jesus is actually going to redeem Paul and love Paul, he's also picking the perfect missionary for his plan to be, bring Christ to the world because we get a little foretaste through the Magi, but Paul was the one, and this, was just, this is just God's you know, amazing grace. He uses this guy who wants to extinguish the church to be the one that takes the reputation of the church global. And he's going to use his skills and abilities. Think about Paul's history here. He's a trained expert in the Torah, which means he probably memorized much of the Old Testament, much of the Hebrew scriptures. And so when the light of enlightenment comes, these coins drop and he's making connections. He's making connections between the promises about the Messiah in Israel, and all this theology knew, now the lights are going on. Jesus is leveraging that, and Paul will go on to be the great theologian of the New Testament. Like, you read his books, and you're realizing, you know, this wasn't just a download. He had all this information, really smart, a real studier, and so he's going to leverage that. God's going to leverage that. On top of that, Paul came from a family that had means, he was able to study. He was able to travel. He was fluent in Greek, Aramaic, and Hebrew. He had Roman citizenship. And so he was actually able to move into different cultural situations and proclaim and reason with people about the gospel, whether it be in synagogues or in Athens with philosophers, Stoic philosophers. He'll quote from their sources. So he's using these gifts and skills Tim Keller said that in some ways Paul represented, before he became a Christian, Paul represented a particular kind of skeptic that often imitates, uh, rather intimidates Christians. Brilliant, a member of the elite, accomplished. But he says this incident proves that everyone is equally unlikely to believe because every conversion is a miracle. And therefore everyone is equally likely to believe. And so there ought to be hope. Now, I say that because we're living at a time, no surprise, where, you know, Christianity has moved from being regarded as irrelevant by many people, like why would I even believe in that, to dangerous and a threat. And so one of the responses, I think, as Christians, naturally, is to say, I'm going to pull back and kind of keep my mouth quiet, and maybe in the worst case, build a fortress and not really, not really hope and believe that Jesus has the power and the love to do great things now in this cultural moment. Right? It's the Ananias mindset. Lord, do you know the conditions down here? Do you, you really think that you can reverse this? 
Don't you know all the people that he's been hurting? In fact, when Paul finally gets converted, no one really believes it because no one really believes Jesus can do that. No one really believes that Jesus can convert people like that. People of God, right? The strength and grace of Jesus, we have to believe in it, right? Move ahead in faith in our relationships. You know, none of us are too hard to convert. And I'll tell you, um, if you're someone that grew grew up in the church, and maybe you think, well, you know, I kind of want... Bear in mind that the great conversion story of the New Testament was a a self-righteous church kid. Paul. Sometimes that's the hardest work to be done. But lastly, I want to leave you with this. Uh, Paul's life work... And his mission would be use of God, but also he would end up being um, one of the greatest examples of suffering love to save people. This is what Jesus means when he says, you'll see how much he's going to suffer. Not that I'm going to punish him. That doesn't make sense of the gospel. Paul will be an example. And if you read about his story, I mean, he, no one had suffered like him for the sake of wanting to bring the grace of God to people. So, wrapping up two things here. One is, uh, we know that Jesus' epiphany mission is, hasn't changed at all. If anything, he has said, greater things we should expect as history moves forward. So we should be filled with epiphany optimism. Wherever we work, whoever we know, maybe it's our families. But on top of that, that he, when he redeemed you, had the wise intention to use your particular story, your particular skills, your particular particular gifts to actually advance that mission. Paul, uh, Mike alluded alluded to it. I always get those two mixed, Paul and Mike. Um, Alluded to it uh, uh, earlier when he said, good works in advance for us to do. If you have been brought into the light, there is a particular ministry you have to do You've been gifted for it. And so it's good to step back and go, like, what's my story and what are my skills and where has God put me into relationship with people? And then trust, you know, God's going to bring epiphany light in those relationships. All right, let's pray. God, we thank you um, that when you revealed yourself, Jesus, you said you, you came not to condemn the world but to save it. Thank you, Lord, that um, your light is our friend. Your light is the way that we are brought near you. I pray for each of us, Lord, that you would uh, persuade us deeply that we can uh, step toward you and know that anybody that comes toward you will not be cast out. In Christ's name, amen.